This podcast was recorded on July 2nd, 2019. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. All right, welcome to the Sherman Show. I'm here today with my co-host Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And today we have a special guest, none other than our chief executive officer, Jeffrey Gunlock. Welcome, Jeffrey. Sherman. And today we are not only recording the Sherman Show podcast here live at the Double Line offices, but we're also posting it. We're recording it on video for our YouTube channel. So for those of you not aware, our YouTube channel is youtube.com backslash double line capital and you'll see more videos i think we posted one from an event we did a couple months ago so we'll continue to post more out there so for those that follow the sherman show pod you can also check us out on our youtube channel as well so thanks for joining us jeffrey sure so here we are the second half of the year already yep yep 2019 it's been a quick one yep i always say you know there's new years and next week is the fourth of july so here we are two days away what's the old commodity thing right you want your corn to be knee high high by the fourth of july yeah so i think the crops have been pretty good recently after all those floods too so i think we want to get an update on where we are and with everything that's been transpiring this year there's been positive markets everywhere but there's a lot of kind of gloom or some negativity that's hiding under the surface. What's top of mind with you right now? Well, I think the analysis of markets, I think it needs to take into consideration the fact that the start date for 2019 was unusually an unusual low point. I mean, the low was December 26th and for day. And so if you've looked at the last six from September 30th, very little has actually happened. You've had a huge roller coaster ride in the stock market and the junk bond market and risk markets broadly. One area that hasn't really done the roller coaster is the bond market, which went to higher yields back in the fourth quarter, but now has been kind of systematically lower. Yeah, starting in November. And a lot of that obviously has to do with the incredible, almost shocking reversal in the Fed's behavior and stated behavior and the rhetoric that they're using. And so it seems to be a concerted effort underfoot to talk people into higher inflation rates. And the Fed and the central bankers around the world, I think, want higher inflation rates and higher than 2%. I and mean, that's why they start talking about symmetric types of analysis rather than taking into consideration atoning for the past sins of having inflation below 2%. We have to, we have to make up for that. But they're not getting the inflation. And I think they're kind of perplexed as to why they can't get any inflation. But kind of oddly, it seems that they're trying to cure the sick patient which is the banking system primarily in Europe, they're trying to cure it with more poison because it's basically the negative interest rates, I believe, that have caused the sort of forever unprofitability of certain parts of the financial industry, insurance companies, banks. And yet, many of the policymakers are calling for a more support of the economy through more negative interest rates. And we've seen that the German tenure, the Bund, the yield bottomed out in July of 2016 when the U.S. rates bombed out as well. But the U.S. rates aren't anywhere close to where they were. 
prior to in July of 2016, but the German Bund is now at an all-time new low as we're speaking here today. They were like 70 or 68 or so above on the 10-year today, at least, right, from where we hit back in July of 17. That's right, in the United States, but in, in Germany, you're at negative 37 now, and you weren't close to that in July of 2016. So I think that we have a lot of concern about global growth, and probably some of that, no doubt, has to do with tensions with trade and the like. I noticed that South Korean exports are down something like 13% over the last 12 months. That's a very important country to watch because just about half of their economy is exports. So you know that they're very sensitive to global slowdown. And again, it's also in the news today, OPEC, we had a big drop in the price of crude oil today because OPEC is talking about feeling forced to extend production cuts because demand just isn't there. Right. Usually with production cuts, you'd expect oil to go the other direction. But as you said, it's more of a demand shock, or at least forecast and demand shock yeah. than a supply shock. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I mean, because oil managed to rally from the production cuts, but now it's falling in spite of production cuts and falling even when they're talking about extending production cuts, which I think has sent a ripple of global slow, slowdown fears all over the place. You know, and you look at the the PMIs and many of the recession indicators that we at DoubleLine like to look at, they were unequivocally strong 18 months ago at the peak of the global stock market with pretty much everything signaling synchronized global expansion. And now you're kind of hard pressed to find one that looks anything but poor or terrible on a trend basis. Many of the, even the United States, which is better certainly than Germany and some other c- countries on their PMIs. Are, I think German manufacturing, I think is below 45 on their PMI, which is something you almost never see. That's, that's pretty rare. But in the United States, we're starting to see real concern from some of the regional Fed PMI uh, and, and beige book yeah, types like of Chicago, studies. New York, Chicago, Dallas. Yeah. yeah. And so it's pretty clear that manufacturing is quite slow relative to where it was. And of course, that would be very sensible given the tariffs. I think a lot of people don't understand that a lot of goods that come out of China, for example, my sister-in-law sells she, she's actually retired because, because of this environment, amazingly. She's been doing it for many, many years, selling stone in a distribution center. And she said that they're having all kinds of tension and problems in their business because they simply can't get the stone. It was coming out of China. And it's not a matter of price. It's a matter of the, the companies are going out of business that supply it to them. So you're seeing all kinds of sort of supply chain knock-on effects. Not so much if people like to focus on technology. I'm talking about something as basic as stone. Right. right. So the right. distribution centers in the United States, they're, they're, some of the stone that they get for home construction comes only from China. So there's things that customers have wanted that they simply can't get. And so some of these distribution centers are starting to lay people off and it's kind of trickling through. I often wonder, you know, people like to say that Trump is an idiot and other people at the same time they say he's an idiot. They talk about how diabolical he is to have figured out you know, the Russia and how to, how to help them meddle through social media and, and all these other things. But one thing that could actually be possible is that the economy could be per- perhaps even intentionally weakened by increasing tariffs. I know we're on hold with the most recent information over the weekend that we're kind of trying to get together again with China and talk about it. But if you actually wanted to put the economy into a recession quickly, you could just say, we're going to put on these other $300 billion of 25% tariffs and at the same time have an ambassador say, oh, by the way, we're getting really close to a deal. Because what that would do is forestall consumer spending decisions almost with certainty. I mean, if you were going to buy some furniture and it comes out of China, it's a 25% tariff. 
And yet there's reassuring words that in 90 days or something, the tariff might disappear. I have a feeling you might delay that furniture purchase if, you, if, if possible. You could see a consumption fall off a cliff. Fall off right. a cliff, maybe go negative, maybe negative could be really sharply negative if you really want to turn the heat up on this. But then if you were trying to say, maybe do something like run for reelection, for example, you might want to take those tariffs off, you know, and then have a consumer spending boom. And you maybe take them off in like, you know, March, April of 2020, because it's pretty clear that President Trump really needs the economy to hang together to even, I think, to even follow through on running. I mean, if you really had negative GDP in the summer of 2020, it'd be very, very difficult to be talking about keeping America great again and all these other things. Well, usually the incumbent struggles and typically loses when you have a bad economy going into the election year, or at least during that election year. Yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the, the number one variables is going to be the health of the economy. And so it'll be very interesting to see what happens as we go in, later into this year, because some of these recession indicators that we follow and we talk about on the webcast a lot, they are, and I've been saying this incrementally, quarter by quarter, they're definitely continue to show cause for more concern. I mean, one thing that's really interesting is the Fed's yield curve model, which is a, they use at the New York Fed to have calculated probability of a recession coming within the next, I don't know, I think it's maybe a year or something. They basically just use the US Treasury yield curve, and it's showing a very heightened, this one variable indicator, which of course has some limitations, but it's showing using the fullness of data, which goes back many decades to basically the end of World War II, it shows something like a 40% chance of a recession, which in recent decades has led to recession. It never really hits 100 it, in the last few recessions. Right? I think in the 70s it did because it probably overfitted to that model, right? Right. So one, one thing some people have done is to try to have a perhaps less anachronistic view of, of this indicator is they've knocked off the data prior to 1985. So you're, that's still a long time period. I mean, you're still talking 34 years. But th if, if you just analyze it using that calibration on the scale, it's up at 63% probability of recession, which is kind of funny because before I saw that post-85 adjustment to the study, I did my webcast and I said, someone said, what's the probability of recession? I think it was actually on CNBC. They said, what's the probability of recession in the next year? And I said, 60 to 65%. And it's kind of funny that that turned out to be, that was just kind of a gut feel kind of thing. That turned out to be corroborated by this adjusted Fed study. And in the past, you're right, it never goes to 100. But some of these past ones, they have gone up to 85 or something like that before the recession actually hit. But there's many other indicators that are starting to sort of have that look. I mean, you need more deterioration in consumer confidence. It dropped big in the most recent month, if you had another drop like that, which is by no means a certainty, in fact, I would actually bet against it, it would start to be really flashing very bright yellow, if not light, light pink. The reason I think that we won't get a really bad consumer confidence number is the most recent one was on the back of the May stock market, which is, seems like a distant memory, but it was only six weeks ago or so that the stock market was horrible right. in May. And then, of course, just like at the turn of the year, where all of a sudden you were rebounded from a dip, pretty big divot that was a bear market in the fourth quarter. Now you have June that completely reverses May. But if you just say, oh, we're off doing great because of June, you have to tie together. You have to tie together May and June. And of course, this many parts of the stock market, certainly the global stock market, the New York Stock Exchange composite, the transports, there are many, many areas that are way below 
where they were January 26th of 2018, which will go down in history as the peak of the global super cyclable market, I think. So from that, that standpoint to you talk about the reversal from May, right, to June, we've seen this in spreads in high yield. We've sure. seen credit, just investment grade credit. We've seen it equities, not really as much in commodities. Gold. But, but rates. Bitcoin. Gold, yeah. Bitcoin, and oil did too based on the initial yeah. cuts there. But the rates market has continued to rally through that. And so there's been somewhat of a disconnect between these riskier parts of the market, even as of late in the last two months, yes. than necessarily, let's say, the rates market in the U.S., really globally, too. You are getting a disconnect even sort of on a year-to-date basis, I think. One thing that's really interesting, with the stock market having rebounded all the way from the December 26th bottom, so you're having one of the, the better year-to-dates that you've had in quite some time, you would think that you would have massive outperformance by triple C corporate bonds, massive outperformance of high yield versus investment grade corporate bonds. And in fact, on a price alone basis, the opposite has happened. I haven't looked at it in the last couple of days. It might have changed slightly since then. But as of a week ago, on a year-to-date basis, the price of the ETF LQD has gone up more than the price of the ETF JNK. Now, JNK has a higher total return because it yields more. But if you just look at the price changes, it's kind of shocking that with this huge rebound in the equity markets, that investment grade is actually outperforming. And as you go down the tiers of junk bonds, you're seeing problems. And there's starting to be some idiosyncratic problems in the junk bond market, kind of name specific. Yeah, I think we saw it today up. when we were talking in our macro meeting, we saw that triple Bs were the best performer of the credit spectrum, right? Yeah. Part of that part of that is this attitude about risk. And part of that, I think, is duration. I think with rates going down, there's some duration benefit from some sec- some slices of, of letter rating. Yeah, and I think also another. in LQD, you mentioned that one. I don't know if we can talk specifically about ETFs, but I know the index that underlies that ETF, for instance, has a longer duration than that's the yes. Barclays credit. So yes, and that's helping. Yeah, that's helped. I think it's like an eight and a half year duration. Yeah, it's, it's, like a, it's more market. than a year longer than, say, the Bloomberg Barclays investment grade corporate index. But you're right. Rates have been falling and kind of in a way that is persistent. The market really had a very violent reaction to Powell saying, you know, we aren't going to raise rates this year. Basically, Paul was much more dovish and open to you know, the idea that we might have to go back to quantitative easing and we might have to cut interest rates sequentially. And the bond market basically said, you know, Jay, you're absolutely right, but you just have no idea how right you really are right. because you've, you immediately priced in yet another and yet another potential cut for this year. So the Fed now says that we're not cutting rates this year. I'm not sure they believe themselves because the July WERP, so here we are early July. So this month, the bond market says the Fed is either going to cut rates 25 or 50 basis points. Those are the only two options that the bond market sees from the Fed here here, here, here in July. And here the the Fed is saying no cuts for the rest of the year. So with the five-year treasury at 175, which is a, a very strong resistance level, it's going to be very hard I think, for the yield to fall through 175. I think you would actually have to see real economic negative signs starting to appear, maybe a negative jobs report or something like like that to appear. There's a lot of interesting things going on. One of the things that is fascinating, people make a huge mistake in fixed income and investments broadly, but I think fixed income even more than other sectors. They take the past and they project it into the future. That's a particularly bad thing to do in the bond market because a lot of the things that create low yields, you know, they, they're not sustainable, or if they are sustainable, they'll have other perhaps differentiated consequences. So for example, the five-year treasury 
down at 175, while that was happening, we've seen corporate spreads tighten and tighten and tighten, which is somewhat consistent with the stock market fully rebounding. But at this point, with 175 on the 10-year and spreads very narrow, you really have to wonder if people aren't shooting themselves in the head, the foot if not the head, by shifting at this point to longer duration sector of the bond market that might be economically exposed. Because if you actually think the duration of LQD, for example, might be a benefit because of fall or f lower interest rates, you have to start fa factoring in that what's causing these lower interest rates must be some sort of economic event that isn't exactly favorable for corporate bond spreads. So we're back at that. I said this same point back in 2016 and then into September of 2017 when we were in a situation that was somewhat similar to where we are today, it's sort of like, I, it's hard to put together the scenario where that sector would actually benefit you. Because you, if, if rates fall, you're gonna lose on spreads widening. And if rates rise, you're gonna lose on duration. So you're in this weird spot where the, the only outcome that looks like it would be advantageous would be no volatility forever, which is to bet on in, one in of the worst ever. possible bets, particularly because the move index has, which I, I talked about earlier this year, is being almost certain to expand. It actually went wild. Not only did it widen off its all-time lows, it went way, way up. It hasn't any, anywhere close to fully relaxed down to where we were in early May. Right. Whereas the VIX, I think, is a 13 handle now on the stock market. So that's acting more in the context of where it's been even back in May. But the move is basically saying, and I think correctly, that you your poorest bet would be for no volatility or no change in yields at this juncture. Yeah, so the move index, for those that don't know, is it's equivalent to like a VIX measure. So it's it's looking at the implied volatility from the overall U.S. rates market. You would mentioned the probability model, talking about the Fed and it be probability of recession and it being essentially a yield curve indicator, right? Yep. So can't the, Fed, can't the Fed just fix their own model by lowering rates? If they lower rates, then ultimately they fix the yield curve and there goes the recession probability? Yeah, I know what you're saying. Right. I know you're being yeah. facetious. But yeah. the, the, the thing <laughs> right. is that ironically, if they did that, it would be very characteristic for another sign that they would actually increase the probability of recession. That's the strangest thing. What people don't understand is that it's true that you get these inversions in the yield curve prior to recessions most of the time, if not all of the time. But then what people don't understand is it stays inverted for a while and it's, it starts steepening right before the economy goes deeper into a negative momentum situation. It's like the bond market sniffs it out and says, aha, the Fed is going to be easing like crazy. And that's going to obviously be in response to what we believe is going to be further economic downside momentum. And to a certain extent, that's already started to happen. I mean, the, we, we follow the 530 spread pretty carefully, five-year treasury, 30-year treasury. And far from that getting inverted or negative, that's actually been widening constantly for, for a year. Steepest, for, it's, it's, year. it's very close yeah. to the steepest. It got to 80. Today, it's 75 or 76. It was down below 20. It was a 19 and change spread at the absolute narrowest point. So that's already starting to happen. And if the bond market pricing is right and the Fed is going to have to slash interest rates two and a half or three times this year, it's almost certain to me that you would start to see that dynamic occur again. So weirdly, you get this strange situation where the yield curve model 
is not truly fixable. Your attempt to fix it every, each and every time has been has coincided with the recession actually showing up. So what's Jay to do here? He's damned if he does, damned if he doesn't. And yeah. so well, no, uh, no, is that no, why no, he probably doesn't want to cut rates at this point? But uh, well, the no wonder he doesn't say anything. Yeah. I mean, he, he, the rhetoric was so violently whiplashed back in December through March, and even December into January was the great majority of that. And so he went to a, this kind of defensive crouch position of saying, we think we can stay where we are all year, and we're going to be careful and monitor the data. And so when the meeting came out in June, it was pretty obvious to me that he wasn't going to cut rates. But he, what was he going to do? Well, he's got to blame things on surprising slower global growth, which he can say is caused by the tariff problem. And there's probably some truth to that. And then he can also say, you know, we failed to make progress on inflation. And so that's what he said. And by the way, while the market is screaming for a rate cut, we'll satisfy that desire by saying, trust me, we're going to be monitoring even more closely than ever. So we're, they're really probably at their finger on the trigger, but I think they're hoping for a strong employment report or rebounding confidence. And those things could very well happen. I mean, the, the stock market, as I said, up in June sharply, and maybe that will affect confidence. And maybe the jobs report was a fluke. Who knows? So you talked about being continuing to take the poison pill, and you said negative interest rate policy. So we had a couple of weeks ago, Mario Draghi talking about not only talking about resurrecting QE once again to help stoke inflation as inflation expectations are at their lows again. We look at their five-year forward kind of expectations. Some of the U.S. were, were trafficking near lows. And you have the idea, not only that, they're talking about perhaps another rate cut. So even yeah. deeper into there, some more poison. And then today we get kind of announcement that Christine Lagarde yeah, uh, is, well, is going to put her hat in the ring and be about, nominated. That's about as close as you can get is having Draghi stay on, it seems right. to me. I mean, you talk about a consistency of policy. So Draghi is going to leave with one last push of stimulus. It was a welcome present to Lagarde, I guess. <laughs> right. And then she's probably going to continue those policies. You know, the, the real question is when is the US, I think, going to start quantitative easing? They've certainly loosened up the market for it. I mean, way back in January, they started saying, I don't know why everyone calls quantitative easing an exceptional tool, an emergency thing. It's just we've learned how to use it and it's now uh, a normal part of our toolkit to try Which to is not the primary mechanism. It's interest rates are the primary mechanism. Primary mechanism. Right? But this, right. Right. Yeah. But this is no longer emergency. Over. It's secondary. And I think pretty soon we're going to have co-primary tools. But you know, when's that going to happen? Well, as I've been talking about ad nauseum, really, and it, in a louder voice starting about 18 months ago, here we are late in an economic expansion, some economic warning signals flashing, yield curve inverted from Fed funds to the 10-year and almost to the 30-year now, right? And we are running massive deficits, which are obviously projected to do nothing but increase. You know, I always encourage people to go to debtclock.org. One of the things that is fascinating is how quickly you get a headache watching this thing because it's sensory. There's so much activity going on. But down in the lower left-hand corner of the debt clock, it says what the deficit of the United States truly is, not just on balance sheet, which you know, it was like 1.4 trillion last year, but the real deficit, well, the, the on-balance sheet was something like 900, 800 billion last year, but the off-balance sheet took it up to 1.4 trillion. But that doesn't include true accounting, which would be gap accounting that we require corporate pensions and others to use. Under gap accounting, the deficit in the last 12 months increased by $6 trillion. 
$6 trillion. What's the disconnect there? Well, it has to do with the, the value of future unfunded liabilities, pensions and the like. So interest rates are actually making deficit worse as you go down, right? Increases in, the present value. In a certain sense, yeah, because as interest rates are lower, right, you, you, the pensions become, at least on a sensible forward vision, they become more underfunded. But that's 30% of GDP. 30% of GDP. And, and you know, we have $50 trillion of unfunded liabilities in Social Security and Medicare and, and, all, and all the rest. So with the next recession, typically the deficit expands by old school ways of looking at it was 4% of GDP. That's how it expanded by. In more the re- last two recessions, it was more like 6 or 8% increase in GDP. And I th- if we just take the lower of those two and say it's 6%, well, Forget about, you know, just start thinking about, even if we go back to forgetting about the gap basis, but just the true growth in the national debt, which was $1.47 trillion in calendar 2018, that, that right there is about six, is six plus percent of GDP. So we'd be talking about it on a kind of a cash basis, not an accrual basis, going up to over 12% of GDP, potentially as a recession, which pretty clearly would put, high, would put pressure on, on long-term interest rates in a normal world. But the question is, will that be allowed to happen? Because that runs into a compounding problem that is basically simple arithmetic mathematics. And so it's very interesting and I think telling that the Fed is already warming us up to this idea that quantitative easing is not an emergency thing. We don't need rates at zero to be doing quantitative easing. Ben Bernanke, I was told, gave a speech in Tokyo suggesting that the government issue perpetual zero coupon bonds. So that, that and of course, there's, there's zero cost on that. It's, it's just a mechanism by which you could monetize. Right. Well, didn't Bernanke also, was it Bernanke that flipped the idea of the trillion dollar coin too, that the, the Fed was going to create one too? Yeah, I can't remember what I, the context I, was. I can't either, but I remember something being about that. It's like, well, here's all I think all it was back in the credit crisis. Yeah, it was, I think it was post-financial crisis, but or, mm-hmm. they were maybe, talking maybe about nine. Yeah. So absent the trillion dollar coin that no one wants, right? I guess you could store it at the Fed and people would come by the, the building and take a look at it and say, hey, there's all our debt in one or two coins. But what happens in this case? Do, do we stoke inflation through that? Do we just perpetually run this Ponzi scheme? I mean, Ponzi scheme is a little harsh. Well, you know, but if you truly go to quantitative easing to absorb the supply of all these bonds to forestall interest rates from going up, you know, I, I think that that quickly opens the door for a number of income enhancement tools or universal basic income. And that is the way you get to inflation. You have to put the money in people's pockets. It's not just printing the treasuries and spending it wildly. Quantitative easing seems to have had the consequence. It's pretty hard to debate the the counterpoint on this one. I, I think it's somewhat responsible for ever increasing wealth inequality. And so this because will be a the problem. Asset owners versus the asset renters. Yes, and that, right, yes. The benefit from that. Yes, right? and and so I, I just don't believe you're going to be able to pull that off without giving something what's at least initially is perceived to be a salve to the wound of wealth inequality to the lower working middle class poor and all this sort of thing. So that's how you would really get when you say stoke inflation. That's how you would get there. It's really what you've been talking about, too, is your quick solution to inflation, right? You put a couple hundred thousand, a couple hundred million dollars. Sure, whatever the number is. I mean, it's interesting. You know, the the French government was on the gold standard, I think, until about 1774 or so, 
We're talking way back before the French Revolution. Actually, it led to the French Revolution. And their, their deficit problem was very, very bad. You can, you can look this up. It's in the history books. And they had a very high amount of national debt versus GDP, a lot of the same situations that are existing in parts of the world today. And they went off the gold standard. And they went off the gold standard. They went to a money printing type of system that started out with doling money out. Unfortunately, what people that think about universal basic income, they think of it in very idealistic terms. They don't realize that it's so utterly exposed to corruption because somebody has to administer the money giveaway program. And typically, the people that administer these programs find ways to, let's just say, benefit themselves as part of their, the, the duty that they're providing for the society at large. And so I can well imagine that some of the administrators, and this is what happened in France, is that the administrators managed to over-allocate to themselves to, and, and not by a small amount. And so what ended up happening is the people that were in charge of this scheme, they became very, very, very wealthy. Even though there was rampant inflation and they were putting out boatloads of money, what ended up happening is that the lower class, that it on paper is designed to benefit and perhaps to try to create some sort of social harmony, they get, got much poorer and ended up not having anything to eat and things like this. And so you ended up – the printing presses ended up leading to the revolution. Is that how you ended up with the Palace of Versailles? <laughs> uh, I'm not sure when Versailles was built, but yeah. certainly Louis XVI was hanging out in Versailles when the mob came and <laughs> when got they came, him. Right, yeah. And the guillotine, right. the guillotine came out in about 1793 or so, and they they killed they guillotined a lot of people, but it was only like 3,000. Most of the people, there were many tens of thousands killed. Most of them were just shot. So the, the guillotine was that was reserved for the for the upper class to put on. I think to put on a public display. Okay. Well, let, let's transition a little bit there from guillotine and yeah. shootings and violence of the American culture here, although we're talking about the French. you know. Yeah. So what I was going to ask about, we were talking about inflation, was if I recall when Shinzo Abe ran on his platform in a country that was fearful of inflation, it was the boogeyman, a la, you know, kind of like the Germans think today or have for the last, you know, since the Weimar Republic. He ran a platform. He said, I want to stoke inflation. I want to create some form of inflation. Obviously, he's not been able to. No, it didn't work. Uh, at least not in a meaningful manner. Do you think that we can change the perception here? Because if you think about it, it's the baby boomers that experience that inflation, right? We're talking about different transitional generations here. And can you sell it to the masses, You know, like the administration or let's say a new political party coming in or even the Fed? Can they sell the idea that we need to really – have this inflation for some for you well, know, they're to, they're to already tone, they're already right? trying. I mean, there's plenty. Look, like I, like I alluded to earlier, it used to be that there was a ceiling on the hoped for inflation rate in the United States of two percent on the headline CPI. That was thought to be a ceiling, so you always want to be below it. And then suddenly, it started to turn into a goal. Yeah, it was price stability was zero, but then they didn't want to slip below it. I think this was Greenspan that, well, maybe it should be zero. And then the Bernanke, Bernanke I think Bernanke is the one that set the objective of 2%. Right, I think so. Yeah, yeah 2%. And the idea there becomes, well, if we can, it, we want to target 2% because for some unknown reason that became determined to be exactly the right pace of devaluation. And everybody, of just assume, money. And everybody assumes that's the right number. Too, yeah, right? it's, it's one of these things where yeah. people repeat what other people repeat. So they, they say, you know, well, what, what is price stability? Well, it's 2%. No, it isn't. Price stability is zero. Zero, right. Right? So then it went to 2% is the goal. And then if you were listening very carefully, it seemed to morph into 2% is the floor. And now it's 2% is 
really even, not even enough. It's, or it has to be a floor because we need some duration of time where we run. And if you listen carefully to the theme, they don't say it literally, but the theme, I think what they're saying is we need some period above three to make up for those periods that we're down at one or even moments below one, a lot of period of time of one and a quarter. So I, I think I think the goal actually, it's not stated because maybe we're it's perceived that we're not ready for it yet psychologically, but I think the goal is to get it higher than three. And the only way you're going to do that, I think, is, is through this money transfer where you actually put it in, in people's pockets. So that idea isn't polling very well yet, the monetary giveaway. I mean, Andrew Yang, obviously, that's his, by far his signature issue, $1,000 per month to every adult over 18. He's going nowhere fast. So this idea hasn't caught on at all. But it's not helpful, though, because if everybody gets it, all you do is just raise the barometer up for everybody. It's not like you solve an inequality issue. It's everybody well, gets you, it. You, 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 mo- you, you modestly address the inequality. The $1,000 to Warren Buffett isn't going to change his lifestyle. It is, is going to change the behavior, I think, of someone that's making $35,000. I mean, I think that now the, the, the question is how quickly does it get raised above the twelve? And how does this get measured? Again, Andrew Yang isn't winning. I also noticed that in the debates just passed, I didn't see, other than Andrew Yang, I didn't see any real enthusiasm from some of the candidates that have trial ballooned these ideas. Like Kamala Harris has one she put out there. She's not harping on that at all at this point. And Cory Booker has one too, that there was some sort of an account you would get when you were born that would be kept and would build up until you're 18 years old, and then you have like $50,000. And the idea is maybe that would set you on your way to climbing the economic ladder. I don't hear Cory Booker talking about that at all, and I, or, or Kamala Harris. I think they're, uh, maybe they'll come back if they win the nomination. But that doesn't seem to have enthusiasm. What there is enthusiasm for are wealth taxes. Elizabeth Warren speaks about her wealth tax a lot. And she has a devious way of talking about it for wealth above $50 million, she says, you'll only have to pay two cents. That's what she says, two cents. What she means is 2% of the entire amount above $50 million every year. So after 50 years, you know, depending on the growth of, of the asset pool or the like, you would have at least taxed all of it, at least in 2020 dollars. You can't, you can't buy 10-year treasuries and, and protect yourself against that at 198 today. You'll well, still- it, all, it all just goes to the government. <laughs> right, exactly. right? Yeah, there, there is no growth right. there. That's right. right. So that would, that would lead to higher interest rates almost for sure. And then you might have the quantitative easing and right. everything gets very, very complicated. But her wealth tax is unbelievably a winner in polls. I don't think I've ever seen an issue poll as robustly. I, I haven't seen one since she rolled it out. But I doubt it's changed. The, the poll was that an amazing 87% of Democrats were in favor of that tax. 87%. I mean, that's, I don't, you never see a poll of a poll reading higher than 87%. I'm not even sure hatred for Congress or distrust of Congress would poll as high as 87%. I think at times it has. It's gotten close. I think. I'm not sure if yeah. it is yeah. there now. But interestingly, it's, it's a winner among Republicans. More than 50%. I can't remember if it was 54%. That's 57. That's kind of what sticks in my head, 54%. But it's an, it's an amazing number because you're getting – it's a 70% winner if you have equal numbers of, of these Republicans and Democrats. So that to me is a really dangerous idea because Europeans have flirted with this stuff before and stopped it because – I think France did it and had to stop because they were experiencing a huge outflow. 
Now, you could stem the outflow by saying, and Elizabeth Warren has proposed this as part of the measure, that you have some massive exit tax if you leave. I think it's 40 years of the wealth tax is, is, is the exit penalty. And in a sense, virtually anybody that would be self-made, there's probably some Silicon Valley guys, but even they're quite young. But even them, 40 years is basically their life expectancy, right? Maybe 50. But I mean, that's, that's not that, – that, so they're basically saying you're, you're not allowed to leave. You're, you're living in East Berlin. Right. Yeah. Well, I think in that case, if they do leave, they're not coming back. They're not going to tell the government, hey, I want to opt out. Maybe you're hopping around your 90-day visas around the world. I well, what, what, you know, there'd be ways of trying to get around it, I suppose. You, you, would, you would shift to – I'm sure many people have already begun to do this, to shift to assets that they can conceal. And in that way, the 40 percent is not so painful. Right? But they'd be concealing them anyway. But then the, the administration of all these things would be just so diabolically difficult. But again, just like universal basic income you know, has an ideological appeal to some people, the administration of it almost certainly get corrupted very, very quickly as these types of ideas have been historically. And the wealth tax sounds nice when you think about we're going to pay for free tuition and many other things. But the administration of it is almost unthinkably difficult. So what about the idea that other folks have floated, the other kind of phrase they use for this redistribution of MMT? Why do the wealthy need to pay for it when deficits don't matter? Something that got propagated in the Reagan administration has been floating around. The the left wing of of the party uses that argument. And to their credit, the argument actually is is a sound argument. Both are wrong, but they're right in pointing out a logical symmetry. Ocasio-Cortez and and Bill de Blasio and these characters, they're right when they say, how come when we blow up the deficit for corporate tax cuts, nobody says that we have to worry about the deficit? How come it only matters that we're borrowing a bunch of money and not paying for new projects and new policies when it's free tuition. I mean, that is a logical argument. They're right. Why does it only matter for tax cuts? How come it doesn't matter for spending increases? The problem is the tax cuts should not have happened and the, the spending increases should not happen. But at least on that, on that kind of rhetorical point, they're right. But unfortunately, I think we're getting to the place where there's popular support for the fact that identifies the symmetry of the logic and it creates incremental support for spending programs. Because you're right. It's sort of like, well, deficits don't matter. You said so yourself, sort of, by passing this corporate tax cut. At least your deeds. I don't know if your words said deficits don't matter, but your deeds certainly revealed an underlining mindset. Well, I think the words were that the tax cuts will pay for themselves. Well, sure, but that's what that's what the, the Green New Deal people say too. They they say, "Don't ask us how we're going to pay for it." That question is irrelevant. The only question is how we're going to s- divide up the massive economic boom and the great wealth creation that it's going to, in, you know, bring to our country. So it, it, they're stealing or borrowing the arguments, both of them. The deficits don't matter, and it's going to, and if they do matter, we don't have to worry about it because we're not going to increase the deficit. We're going to shrink the deficit. Lau was telling me about a story he saw. I think it was late last week about there's this gold asteroid belt out there oh, right? yeah, between yeah. Mars and Jupiter. <laughs> Everyone could be a billionaire, right? And so there's trillions. I think of I think it's a I think a trillion. A trillion, I think right? Mm-hmm. I think everyone could have a trillion dollars. So that's a segue into gold. You've been a fan of gold. Is since, it because of, yeah, yeah. since since it was eleven ninety and in my webcast back last September, I turned bullish. So on that note, with thinking gold recently had a breakout, got Looks over like fourteen hundred. 
because it seems to be selling around that number. What does it look like, perhaps, again, not to forecast or tell people mm-hmm. recommendations, but with all this idea of monetization, negative interest rates, shouldn't that be somewhat bullish for gold, even yeah. from these levels? Too, right? I, I think so. And, and and the dollar hasn't weakened. I mean, it's unchanged year to date, basically. It's right where it ended uh, and 28, gold's higher, 2018. And gold's higher even with that, but it's also higher because the, because the dollar is relatively stable. It means gold's up in virtually all currencies. And I think it has something to do with the fact that the central banks seems like they have embarked on policies that once upon a time they made statements, certainly Ben Bernanke did, that this was temporary. We were going to reverse it. But the most recent rhetoric is the opposite of reversing. It's doubling down, tripling down on these policies. And they're not ashamed of it anymore. They're not even trying to make you believe that they're unlikely to use them or even 50-50 to use them. They're they're preparing you for these policies. And I I think that just basically gold and dollar terms, I think people are starting to realize that both Donald Trump and Elizabeth Warren are quite vocal about wanting to engineer the dollar lower. I believe Elizabeth Warren calls it management of the currency value. Not manipulation, but management. Well, management. I mean, I'm pretty sure she means lower. Right. It's advanced as if it's being a symmetric management. Maybe one day it would be symmetric, but obviously the first stop is lower. And I think the gold market is starting to realize that it's lower. And also this commitment to, to negative interest rates that seems to be stronger than ever in the ECB and the BOJ, you know, gold at least pays zero. Right. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're both going to be volatile. Those bonds are volatile, right? And, and I mean, gold yeah. paying zero. I yeah. mean, if they're going to come and confiscate your wealth, at least you can bear it in your backyard. Yeah. You know. So you mentioned Ben Bernanke there too. I mean, he he was one that was opposed to negative interest rates. He was used the phrase zero lower bound. Yeah. He was a student of Japan, the depression. But now he's come out with his Brookings pieces and said he's supportive of negative interest rate. Maybe we should do that instead of QE. And you hear now Jay Powell's talk about the effective lower bound, no longer the zero lower bound, because essentially you look I, at the, the I, European I, I, I think, markets. I, you know? I think the fundamental desire, and this is what I, is, even though it's totally illogical, it's what's trotted out as being underneath modern monetary theory. I think the desire is to have the growth of the economy and inflation in particular, that'd be even better, substantially higher than the interest rate level. So to just intentionally have negative real interest rates as a not too blatantly concealed way of debasing the debt and hang on longer in terms of being able to service the the interest on the debt as a percentage of GDP, which is set to rise pretty alarmingly in the next eight years or so. I mean, the interest expense in the United States, a percentage of GDP, has been one and a quarter percent. I think it's risen up towards one and a half. In the recent couple of years, it's finally started to rise. But the CBO says absent no recession, it would be over at 3% by about 2027, which to me, the idea of no recession by 2027 is folly. So you would certainly have a higher interest expense than that if you had natural relationships of you know, an interest rate above the inflation rate. Mm-hmm. But by getting it lower than the inflation rate, it, it helps to, I guess, slow down Ease. the rot. Right. right. You know. So a lot, I mean, a lot of the discussion that we're talking about just seems like an ever-increasing pace of the growth of debt relative to our economy, relative to GDP. And that's even absent the, the unfunded liabilities that you talked about before. So just getting into this, you know, part of the, of the cycle where we're just going to see this ever-increasing amount of debt, what's the solution? I mean, I guess, is there an end game here? Is there a way that we can get out of this? Well, you can try monetization. 
I mean, you, you can you can try that. It would probably lead to a very high inflation rate. And again, I quote the the French Revolution experience. I I, I don't see why there's a reason to believe it will come out any differently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about guillotines. I'm just talking about the printing money right. leads to an actual rest, an right? actual yeah. actual uh, remarkably increase in wealth inequality, right. which is already a very very you know stretched out rubber band. Yeah. So that would be one way. The, the other, you know, is well. It's funny how unthinkable it used to be to talk about contractually illegal default, but yet we had a plenty of examples of contractually illegal default in the mortgage market in the credit crisis. Mm-hmm. I mean, we went, went from, you've got to be kidding, you can't just walk away from your mortgage, mm-hmm. to government programs to help you walk away from your mortgage. So obviously, in today's presidential discussion and the debates, particularly in the Democratic Party, there is a very significant fraction of the candidates and even the serious candidates that are gung-ho for debt forgiveness in the student loan category, partial or if not 100%. Bernie Sanders says within six months, all the debt's gone. Elizabeth Warren says we're going to eliminate 95% of it. So we're talking about debt forgiveness. Once you get on that on that road, I don't see why the the momentum of debt forgiveness wouldn't accelerate. So is that a solution? Maybe. I mean, solutions are about recognizing you have a problem is the first road to solution, then being willing to take the pain to work through the problem and then set up a system that is now, no, that is now in sync with the changes that have happened in the economic infrastructure. Yeah. So this is basically Marxian economic historical philosophy, where basically it's a recognition that innovation, especially at certain moments in history, like right now, is exploding to new levels which really changed the game for how the property is distributed. So it's the means of production are very organic and can evolve very quickly, but the, the means of production can, but the property rights, the property rules, they are calcified because the people that are benefiting from the property relations don't want them to change. So not only is it difficult for people's ways of thinking about property relations to evolve quickly, there's actually momentum the other way. There's resistance. And once the process becomes out of sync, the need for a shift in the property relations becomes ever more evident, like like people talk about a wealth tax today, ever more evident. And then finally, you have to say, this is no longer a viable system. Our property relations are not in sync with the way the means of productions have shifted. We basically have to create a new system. Now, oftentimes that's done through violent means because of the resistance. Sometimes maybe it isn't. So you, you hope that it can be as painless as possible. But the good thing about all of this is the problem that we can identify now, we would have to actually take head on through some unpleasant method, methodology, whether it's inflation or jubilee, but at least we can get to the other side of the valley. And actually, the most explosive and progressive periods in human history are after those two things are put back into sync, albeit through a painful process. Right. You just have to survive through that process. Yeah. Right. And when you were mentioning that, it made me think of the Kubler-Ross model that was described as the five stages of grief. And the first one is yeah. denial. 
Yeah. And I think we've all we've all gotten to that stage, at least in any of these sure. pain processes. Maybe there's some anger developing. There's definitely yeah. anger. Yeah, I think then the anger's ob- it's obvious yeah. to see anger. Right. Depression's next. Maybe Opioids, yeah. I think, are, are go hand in glove with right. depression. But then, then it becomes the bargaining, right, which I think is what you're talking well, there's about. There's bargaining going on right now. Yeah. But then the last one, and that's the acceptance. success, is acceptance. Correct. Yeah. 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 So... Hopefully we can we can get there without some of those extreme means. On the yeah, way, I, I I do think I do think that there's going to be anger through this political season into 2020. I, I it wouldn't surprise me whatsoever that there were some something less than trivial rioting related to potentially the conventions. Sure. It will depend a lot on on what the economy looks like, of course. Right. Yeah, unfortunately, the worse the economy is, probably the more likely that scenario, right? Yes. Yeah, right. Unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, that's right. It's kind of interesting, yeah. though. I mean, the focus on at least the first two debates for the Democratic Party seemed to shift away from more of the economy, which was more prevalent in 2016, Make America Great Again. Infrastructure was something that was touted by both sides. Remember, Dems and Republicans, everyone wanted, wanting to outdo each other. Seems like the tone of the debates thus far have been more social in nature or... Yeah, very much so. I mean, a lot of stuff about the border a lot of things about race relations and other identity relations. I mean, that was obviously one of the things that propelled Kamala Harris to now be effectively tied with Joe Biden just a couple of business days after those debates. So, I mean, that's, but I think underneath a lot of these issues is economic injustice and is actual social injustice. I mean, they go hand in glove. I, I think, I think, I think, you know, one of the things that's really going to be fascinating to watch, you've mentioned the last two debates where Certainly, the, the second night debate shifted the playing field pretty meaningfully. But the rules change in the September debate. Now, the rules are you've got to poll at something like 1% or you have to have 65,000 unique donors. Those rules double for September. So right now, very few candidates would actually qualify for the September debate. Now, many of them will clearly fail to meet that standard. I mean, I don't think Gillibrand, I don't think, you know, some of these others, people don't even know their names, Ryan and Inslee and Williamson and all these. I mean, it's very, very unlikely. However, somebody that's got some name recognition and is feisty and has a particular angle that he's been pursuing to try to get himself up in the polls is Cory Booker. And Cory Booker, if things if the decision was made today, he would not qualify. And if you don't qualify for the September debate, your campaign is effectively over. So Cory Booker has every incentive to let it all hang out there and to take a shot. And especially after seeing the Kamala success of a 10-point poll bump in a couple of days, I've got a feeling that Cory Booker is, could throw a lot of bombs. And of course, the person you're going to get that few percentage points from is probably the most vulnerable candidate that still has significant polling support. And right now, that's the, the, weak, the ones that have significant support but are, but are fading are the two old guys, Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. And of course, Joe Biden has had a, took a two by four to the forehead on his busing stance and on some of his past relationships with Southern racists. But he's also, what a lot of people don't know is Joe Biden co-wrote the 1994 mass incarceration bill with Strom Thurmond. Strom Thurmond, I think, co-wrote it, and he's kind of a Hall of Fame segregationist himself. And Cory Booker has already gone on the Sunday shows telegraphing that he doesn't plan on letting this disappear. So I think that there's a freight train coming there, and we'll see what happens along the way. But uh, I've said very early on in the 2016, before the primary started, I said Trump was going to win. 
And because I was so right on that and never wavered on it, a lot of people have been asking me about 2020. And all I could can t- tell you, all I've been willing to opine on is Trump won't run if there's a recession and Joe Biden will not get the nomination. And nor will Beto O'Rourke. He's he's all but disappeared by now. But Joe Biden was kind of a presumptive candidate, very much in the mode of where Hillary was in 2016. I, I don't I don't think he's going to make it. I mean, Joe, Joe Biden has been running for president for 32 years, and in that 30-year time period, he's won exactly zero delegates in the primaries, not one. So for somebody that likes to run for president so much, he has a lot of presidential ambition. It's surprising how bad he is at it, and he's. Uh, it seems like. You know, I, I made a joke that Joe Biden, if, if he drops out of politics, he should open a nightclub in Hollywood called the Gaff Factory. There's a comedy club there called the Laugh Factory. So I'm kind of riffing on that. But he's certainly, he's certainly off to a fine start in terms of producing gaffes. Yeah. Well, Jeffrey, we're close to time here. I want to be cognizant of your schedule. We really appreciate you sitting down. But you know before you leave, Lau has his favorite thing to do. Okay. Got to do our, our verbal Rorschach check. Sure. So. All right. Yeah, and you know the rules, but I'll just go ahead and repeat them for our listeners. I'll give out a term, and I will alternate between Jeff Sherman and yourself and hope to get a one-word prompt for top-of-mind response from you. So we're going to start out with Jeff Sherman with student loan forgiveness. Likely. U.S. negative interest rate policy. Likely. (laughs) U.S. dollar. Down. U.S. housing market. Securely slower than the optimists have been predicting. Wealth tax. Brutal. High tax states. Losing population. Hobby. Too many to choose from? Yeah. Yeah, Working too hard. (laughs) Yeah. Need need a new one. Pet peeve. Uh, Robocalls. Those just are relentless these days. Yeah. Well, they changed the rules on that. And they, there was some sort of FCC thing where they had a weird reinterpretation that allowed for these robocalls. And it's shocking how much money people make doing robocalls. It's shocking. I, I've watched a documentary about it. It really is amazing how much money. People make hundreds of millions of dollars off of robocalls. Well, it's amazing too because they spoof like whatever your prefix is in your phone number. So they have the area code and your prefix. A lot of them... Look like they're well, local to yeah, them, right? But yeah. they're they're yeah. they're basically making so much money because regional businesses or local businesses, they are having eight hundred numbers sent to them. So there's there's these eight hundred numbers that people own. They make a lot of money on them, and they basically say like one, one might be one eight hundred mechanics, right? So if you want your car fixed, you might call one eight hundred mechanics. Well, AT and T kind of sells or these other carriers they sell your location. And so if, if you're perceived to be in you know, Los Angeles zip code, your call doesn't go to an 800 number that's national number. It goes to Amco, a car repair place that's near where you are. And so the, car, the Amco understandably is willing to pay a lot of money. So there's also, it's not so much that people are falling, I don't think, for the IRS is after you scam. It's for they're actually <laughs> paying. These businesses are paying to get their calls routed so that they get an increased flow of the business. And so robocalls, I, I, I think my number of I've received is probably up about 30x since a year ago. It was almost nothing. And now it's like 30 a day. Yeah, I've been getting them in different languages too now. Yeah, I get them in yeah. different languages yeah. all the time. Yeah. 
And I just it's, try it's not probably answer. because I'm driving through yeah. like little Tokyo or something. It could right. be. Yeah. No, seriously, yeah, it right? Could be. Right, yeah. the car might just be driving through. Yeah. 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 So they are listening scary. to you. They know they're listening to you. Yeah. We'll have to get Garza to do some research on that. Yes, indeed. <laughs> All right. The next couple are going to be choices. So tacos por favor or Casa Escobar? Those are both great Santa Monica establishments. I like Casa Escobar better. Escobar. Yeah. It's got that old school flavor. <laughs> yeah. They still claim strongest that. margaritas you can't in town, beat that. too. I never drink tequila, ever. I, it's, it's a rough one. So. I can't even smell it's it. It's definitely an Uber yeah, I trip. I hate the way it smells, yeah. Uh, Tate or Somerset? Oof. I'll say Somerset just as, to, as an encouragement that people go. The Somerset House is a, it was a private museum. This guy was a collector. He was, I think he was, he did synthetic silk or something. He made synthetic silk and made a fortune off of it. And he's got the one with Van Gogh's ear bandaged. He's got the Manet girl at the bar, which is the great, one of the great few Manet paintings. Cezanne card players, which are just to die for. And there's two Tahitian Gauguin pictures. And these are, these are quality and rarity that is very, very rare to find, very unusual to find. And it's all very compact. So you can see the Somerset House in its entirety, at least in parts you might want to see, in, a, in an hour and a half. The Tate, you'd have to come back several times, and the quality is very, very uneven. That's the way I feel about the Musée d'Orsay, right? It's, yeah. it's concentrated. It's a beautiful building, too, and it's just enough It's enough to see. You get an hour and a half there, or so. There, there's a lot, lot of puff there, though. There's a, there's a lot of these second-tier Impressionist paintings by Pissarro and Sisley. But the Caibat and the Van Gogh and the the pastel room of Degas. There's some really fine stuff at the Musée d'Orsay. And the architecture is is just ingenious. I, I love train stations around the world. Yeah. I always go see them. So anyway. Well, it's interesting too. You're talking about days needed across the, the river, right? You have the Louvre as yeah. well. So, Tupac or Biggie? Tupac. That's quick. Warhol or Rothko? Warhol. Tough though. Very tough. You look stumped there to, to come <laughs> up with yeah, but Warhol's body of work is more, there's more depth to it. Oh, and you can see we're in the Kapoor room now, too. We've renamed the podcast room here, too. Yes, yeah, one, of the, one of the two yeah. finest living sculptors, him and Richard Serra. Which is another conference room right here. So, again, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We had Jeffrey Gunlight. Thank you so much for the time. I know our listeners really appreciate it. And, again, you can catch this live video on our YouTube channel, youtube.com backslash double line capital. And on top of that, you can give us feedback at Sherman Show, Sherman Show at DoubleLine.com. You can get this on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, and now on Spotify as well, as our listeners asked for. Stay tuned for the next episode coming soon. Thanks again, Jeffrey. Thanks, Sherman. The audio presentation represents Double Line's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of Double Line. Double Line has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from Double Line, please contact media at doubleline.com. Neither Double Line nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore, including and respect of direct, indirect, or consequential 
physical loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2019, DoubleLine Capital.